All right. Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and it has been, um, I don't know how long it's been. Uh, I haven't been on for, I think, maybe like a week or two or something like that. Uh, things have been a little busy on my end, and so I haven't had the opportunity to um, to do a live stream in a while. Um, and um, the busyness uh, that I speak of is actually all good. I've been spending a lot of time with family uh, today. Um, I went to a, a wonderful lake with the family, sw went swimming. Um, so if you notice, if, if I, don't, I don't know if, if it's showing, but... Um, uh, if my face looks super red, it's because I was outside for a long time. So, um, it, it should go away though. I am Puerto Rican and Puerto Ricans don't normally get suntan. I'm pretty good. Cause I got the, the dark skin already. So, um, if I look like a big red monster on the screen, I do apologize. Uh, but that's what I did today. Uh, I've been spending, uh, just some time with the family and, uh, yeah, blame it on the camera filter. That's right. Um, uh, but things have been going very well. I've got a, a couple of guests coming up in the future. Um, so I'll let folks know uh, what's going down um, in September. I think it's September 2nd. I'll double check. I'm going to have Dr. Matthew Barrett on. Uh, and if any of you guys are familiar with Dr. Matthew Barrett, he wrote um, he wrote a bunch of books, uh, one of which um, really caught my interest, um, especially because of the importance of the topic. Uh, he wrote the book, God's Word Alone. Uh, which is a book um, going through the historical development and explanation of the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Um, so that's a super important topic, especially uh, with the heightened level of discussion um, that continues to go on between um, Protestants and Roman Catholics. And of course, uh, the becoming more popular uh, in the, uh, in the, on the interwebs is, is the discussion with Eastern Orthodox folks. And so uh, the issue of Sola Scriptura comes up a lot. I think it's a super important topic. Um, and sure, other people have covered it, um, but, uh, you know, it's good to kind of go over common grounds and, and, and remind ourselves the importance of these, these great Protestant uh, doctrines. So I'm looking forward to having Dr. Barrett on to discuss, uh, to discuss that. If those of you um, are interested in that topic, and even the topic of Eastern Orthodoxy, you might want to check out um, uh, Vocab Malone's channel. Um, he's been doing a couple of things on Eastern Orthodoxy, which um, I think needs to be done. There's not a lot of, um, at least to my knowledge, not a lot of Protestants spending a lot of time um, discussing Eastern Orthodoxy in any depth. So um, you guys should check that out. Also, if you guys are interested, I did have an interview a while back with Hank Hanegraaff, uh, the Bible Answer Man, and then I had Dr. Tony Costa, who is a Reformed um, apologist and scholar. Um, he came on, I think, two or three times after my interview with Hank Hanegraaff uh, to kind of respond and give a, a kind of a critique of the Eastern Orthodox uh, position. Of course, I've, I've received messages from people, you know, obviously Hank Hanegraaff is not the representative defender of Eastern Orthodoxy. That's, that's fine. Um, so I'm sure there are other folks that, that people would, would like for me to have on. And I actually am very interested in moderating. Maybe someone could kind of reach out to these people. Okay. I'm, I'm very much interested, um, in moderating, uh, a debate between, uh, James White and Jay Dyer. Okay. Uh, Jay Dyer is, uh, uh, an Eastern Orthodox guy and he's, um, he's got a pretty big channel. He, I've listened to a lot of his debates. He, interestingly enough, as an Eastern Orthodox, uh, guy, he uses presuppositional apologetics. And so that has come up on my radar. Um, folks have asked me to, you know, is it possible 
to use a presuppositional approach uh, in a consistent way from within a different theological paradigm from that of, say, a Protestant Christianity? Um, and I think that's a, a good question. You do have folks that differ um, on how to answer that. Um, from the perspective of Van Til, of course, um, the only consistent presuppositionalism that there is is one that flows out of a consistent Reformed theology, and that will include a Reformed understanding of the doctrine of God, uh, his absolute nature and meticulous sovereignty. Um, again, when Van Til was developing his apologetic methodology, it was very much related to uh, God's decree and that everything that comes to pass has the meaning and significance that it does because it fits in the ultimate and absolute plan of God. So a very Reformed understanding of God, the nature of man, uh, all these sorts of things, the noetic effects of sin, the effects of sin upon the mind, all play um, a very important role within the presuppositional uh, paradigm. Uh, so one would argue, or one could argue, I would argue, uh, that the only consistent presuppositionalism there is, if you're going to go along, say, you know, Van Tillian lines, is one that flows out of a consistently reformed uh, perspective. So I'd really love to see that debate. If anyone uh, knows uh, Jay, uh, Jay Dyer, and um, I did reach out to Dr. White. Of course, uh, these gentlemen are busy. Uh, there's a lot going on, and and so I would completely understand um, if they if they don't read my measly email. But um, hopefully, I'll get a response from someone, and maybe we could moderate a really uh, interesting debate, uh, perhaps on the topic of sola scriptura, or or even just the merits or lack thereof of the Eastern Orthodox position. So maybe we can have kind of a a moderated discussion. Um, for example, if you've seen the thumbnail of this specific video, I will be um, responding to a brief article or a response to a question that was uh, given by Dr. Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe. Um, but if you remember, I had Dr. Ross on my show multiple times, uh, once by himself uh, to talk about old earth creationism and perhaps my most watched video on my channel. Um, I think it's the most watched video um, on my channel uh, is when I had Dr. Ross on and another astrophysicist and young earth creationist, Jason Lyle. And we had a, an awesome, they had an awesome discussion and I was able to moderate kind of a um, casual conversation as opposed to a more structured uh, debate. And so uh, if you guys are interested in the whole old earth, young earth perspective, uh, you know, you definitely want to check out that video if you haven't already. Um, all right. So hopefully we can get something like that going on. So I have Dr. Matthew Barrett to come on to talk about Sola Scriptura and I will be having uh, Dr. Michael Heiser on, um, I think sometime in October. So we're trying to nail down a specific date, but I'm going to have uh, Dr. Heiser on to talk about uh, angels and demons, which is a super fascinating uh, topic. I understand that um, Dr. Heiser has some interesting views and uh Quite frankly, um, I, I've listened to some of his uh, books on audio, and I've read a little bit of his books, and I know enough of Dr. Hydra's position that I find his position interesting, but I figured it'd be great to kind of have him on the show to kind of unpack in detail uh, what his view of angels and demons are, um, you know, his whole issue with the divine council and things like that. So I'm looking forward to an interesting uh, show with, with Dr. Heiser there. So... Um, all right. Well, let's dive right in. Okay. Uh, so there was an article that was shared by uh, Dr. Hugh Ross on Facebook and perhaps, I guess, some other platforms uh, where uh, it was entitled, I believe, uh, Thoughts on Cornelius Van Til and Greg Bonson's Apologetic. Okay. And so he's just sharing his thoughts on, uh, on Van Til and Bonson, which is 
fine. That that's awesome. Um, but there were a couple of things that I read in his response, and it's very brief. I'm actually going to read the whole thing uh, for you guys uh, here. Um, but when I had him on my show to have that discussion with Dr. Lyle, there were some comments when they kind of dipped out of the discussion of old earth, young earth, there were, there was an issue where apologetic methodology came in. And so, um, he made some comments in that discussion that I, I kind of was like, well, I'm not so sure I agree with that. And that point that I didn't agree with him on, uh, is repeated, uh, here in this brief, uh, response. Now, that said, okay, I need to make a, a disclaimer, all right? And I know people say, yeah, yeah, Eli, we know. I'm going to say it anyway, okay? This is not, this this response here is not to bash or to talk down upon or to question the credentials of Hugh Ross as an apologist. If folks are interested in apologetics with that scientific bent, I highly recommend folks listen to Dr. Hugh Ross. He is an expert in his field. Um, and you, there's a lot to learn from Dr. Ross. And I know there are some hardcore young earth creationists who are probably shaking their fist and saying, Hey, how dare you, man? You know, Hugh Ross is a, a, a deceiver. Hugh Ross is a, you know, a charlatan. Hugh Ross is a, is a compromiser. Listen, there are folks who, um, they differ on certain theological topics. And we need to understand that while those issues are important, they are in-house issues. And so I have no problem uh, calling Jason Lyle and calling um, Hugh Ross um, and even calling Ken Ham, the infamous Ken Ham. <laughs> I don't have no problem calling them my brothers. They disagree, right? Um, and we talk about these things. So um, this is just uh, an opportunity. When I read the, his response here, it was a teaching opportunity to kind of point some things out so that um, clarification can be brought to the issue of apologetic methodology. This is not an attempt to undermine all of the work, all the wonderful work that Reasons to Believe does. And, and by the way, what Reasons to Believe does goes far beyond simply uh, promoting um, old earth creationism. Of course, that's their, their main focus, at least as I'm familiar with it. But there are other things that they do. There's some great uh, scholars and, and apologists uh, that work for reasons to believe. And so this is by no means uh, trying to, um, you know, talk down uh, to them or, or anything like that. Okay. So with that said, let me share the screen real quick. Okay. Now what, <laughs> what you're seeing on the screen is far too small for you to follow along. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to share, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of magnify this a bit. There we go. Okay. All right. So this was posted on reasons to believe, uh, their website and of course on their Facebook page. And I'm, I'm going to read the whole thing to you and then I'm going to comment. I'm going to read it again and then we're going to comment on it a bit. Okay. So you guys can see that. Okay. And of course, this is uh, not a self-contained video. This is a live stream. So if, if any uh, point you have a question um, that you have in light of my comments here, uh, feel free to ask them. If I'm able to answer them, um, I will. If I'm not, of course, I have no problem saying I don't know. I've studied presuppositional apologetics for a very long time, but I am not the grand Pumbaa in the sense that I know all the answers, okay? Every time someone asks a really good question, it causes me to kind of go back and be like, you know what? What did Van Til say about that? What did Bonson say about that? So um, I do appreciate your questions if you have them, okay? All right, well, oh, oh, by the way, super chat questions go straight to the top. You guys know how that goes. I appreciate uh, the super chats that I've received in the past, and I do appreciate just the overall support that folks have been giving uh, to Revealed Apologetics 
Um, I very much appreciate that. Stay tuned. Um, I have an apologetics, uh, online apologetics course that I offer that folks can sign up right now um, on my website, but I'm actually working on a systematic theology course. So I'll keep you guys focused. It's one way you can support the ministry and also learn uh, some basic Christian theology. So, all right, well, blah, blah, blah. Let's, let's, let's move along. All right. You don't want to hear about that stuff. You want, you want to get into the nitty gritty here. All right. So uh, Dr. Ross has this our article here, or not so much an article, but a, um, a response to a question uh, entitled thoughts on Cornelius Van Til's and Greg Bonson's apologetic. Okay. And so here's a question of the week uh, that uh, Dr. Ross received. Um, here, here it goes. What are your thoughts about the apologetics of Cornelius Van Til and Greg Bonson? Okay. And here is Dr. Ross's answer. Okay. Cornelius Van Til and Greg Bonson are two of the better known proponents of presuppositional apologetics. Presuppositional apologetics presupposes that the Bible is a divinely inspired and inerrant revelation and hence presupposes a biblical worldview. The apologetics thrust of biblical presuppositionalism is to show the consistency of a biblical worldview while exposing the flaws in competing worldviews. I think both Van Til and Bonson very well crafted the case for using presuppositional apologetics. Another very good presuppositional apologist I would add to the list is Francis Schaeffer. I don't think Van Til, nor Bonson, nor Schaeffer were against evidential apologetics, as many of their followers have presumed. Good apologetics should include both. Presuppositional apologetics is effective at demonstrating what is not consistent and what is not true. Evidential apologetics is effective in establishing what is consistent and what is true. Most unbelievers need to be exposed to both kinds of apologetics in order to come to faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. In the book, Five Views on Apologetics, five theologians, Gary Habermas, William Lane Craig, Paul Feinberg, Kelly James Clark, and John Frame debated one another on which of the five different uh, modes of apologetics is the most effective. The five apologetics methods they defended and debated were the classical, defended by Craig, evidential, defended by Habermas, presuppositional, defended by Frame, reformed epistemology, defended by Clark, and the cumulative case apologetics, defended by Feinberg. I am often asked which of these five methods I espouse and the reasons why I think the other four methods are less effective. My answer is that Christians need to be equipped to use all five methods and that the methods one chooses to employ depend upon the person with whom one is sharing their faith. Every non-Christian is different from every other non-Christian. I believe it is always wise to ask enough questions of an unbeliever to determine which one or a combination of apologetics methods will be most helpful in assisting the non-Christian into becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. The reason why I focus so much of my ministry at Reasons to Believe on evidential apologetics is because the non-Christians I most frequently engage need evidence, especially new evidences, in order to believe that the Bible is inspired, inerrant word of God, and that Jesus Christ is creator and Lord and Savior. All right. Well, that's it. That's that's very short. It was a, a response uh, uh, to a question there. Now, there are a number of things that... Um, I think are incorrect in his estimation um, of what a, a presuppositional apologetics is. And um, I think he's incorrect on, on this idea that we can kind of use all these different types of apologetic methodologies. Okay. Notice that he says 
Um, he says, presuppositional apologetics presuppose that the Bible is a divinely inspired and inerrant revelation and hence presupposes a biblical worldview. Okay. And then he says, I think Van Til and Bonson, uh, let me see here. He says, I think uh, Van Til, nor Bonson, nor Schaefer were against evidential apologetics. Okay. Um, I think he's, he's incorrect there. They were against evidential apologetics. Okay. Now this is very important. Okay. Um, there is a difference between the utilization of evidence, right? And the utilization of evidentialism as an apologetic methodology. I'm going to say that again, because this is vitally important. Okay. All right. There is a difference between the utilization of evidence and the utilization of evidentialism as an apologetic methodology. They are not the same. Okay. That's why I often have to correct the false assumption that presuppositionalists are against the use of evidences or presuppositionalism as a methodology is against the utilization of evidences. That's just incorrect. Okay. Um, for example, when a presuppositionalist appeals to evidence, he does not become at that moment, as however brief it is, he does not become an evidential apologist, okay? When a consistent presuppositionalist who wants to be consistent to the principles of presuppositionalism as a methodology uses evidences, he does so as a presuppositionalist, okay? So there is none of this uh, idea of, you know, well, I, I can use presuppositional apologetics to show that the unbeliever doesn't have a leg to stand. And then I'll use evidential or classical apologetics to show, look, here's the positive, the positive case. You can't jump in between methodologies in a, while being consistent. Okay. So, um, so, so let's, let's take a look, uh, again here. So I'm going to, I'm going to read this again, then I'm going to stop at various points and then I'll clarify and kind of expand on, on certain issues here. Okay. All right. So, um, so back to Dr. Ross's answer. He says, Cornelius Van Til and Greg Bonson are two of the better known proponents of presuppositional apologetics. That's true. Okay. Actually, Francis Schaefer that he mentions here, um, is considered under the umbrella of the presuppositional camp. Uh, but again, you have in-house discussions amongst presuppositionalists who is a presuppositionalist. Truly there's the pure, you know, presuppositional, uh, apologist, you know, uh, if you're thinking in terms of being in line with Van Til, I think there are similarities that that Schaefer has there, but there are points where where Schaefer veers off um, and doesn't really reflect. I think um, I don't mean this in like a, a like ooh look, you know, Schaefer's nothing. Of course, he was an awesome uh, believer and contributed much in his literature and all these sorts of things. But what I'm saying is that if I were to if I were to compare, for example. Who is more uh, consistent with Van Til's approach? If we're going to use Van Til as the presuppositional paradigm, you know, someone like Dr. Bonson or uh, Francis Schaefer, I would say Bonson is probably more consistent with what Van Til was getting at than uh, than Francis Schaefer. Okay, but Francis Schaefer is part of that umbrella of presuppositional thought. Okay, all right. So presuppositional apologetics, Dr. Ross continues presupposes that the Bible is a divinely inspired and inerrant revelation and hence presupposes a biblical worldview. By the way, all Christians should believe that the Bible is divinely inspired. So even if you're a classicalist, right, uh, you should believe that that's the case, right? But the issue is, does that presupposition, okay, that the Bible is divinely inspired and is self-attestingly true, 
right? Um, along with all the biblical propositions that are within scripture, does that inform your apologetic, right? That, that, that's where you're going to have the, 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 the different application there. And of course, classicalists and evidentialists will say, well, of course it does. But then we have kind of the, the nuts and bolts disagreements as to how that, that works out. Okay. But at any rate, presuppositional apologetics presupposes that the Bible is a divinely inspired and inerrant revelation and hence presupposes a biblical worldview. The apologetics thrust, and here's a point of, of, of disagreement that I'm going to have. I think if there's a lack of uh, clarity in this following statement, um, and then I'm going to have to differentiate to show you why it doesn't capture what presuppositional apologetics is all about. I'm going to differentiate between two schools of apologetics that I think need to be uh, kept apart. Okay. So uh, Dr. Ross says the apologetics thrust of biblical uh, presuppositionalism is to show the consistency of a biblical worldview while exposing the flaws in competing worldviews. Okay. Now, that's not quite right, okay? Um, because I think when you when you define, for example, uh, presuppositional apologetics in, in in terms of its major thrust, right? Um, you know, in that it's trying to show the consistency of the biblical worldview while exposing the flaws in competing worldviews. Um, this statement right here doesn't doesn't summarize presuppositionalism along Vantillian lines, uh, nor Bonsonian lines, if that's an actual word, okay? There is another presuppositionalist that is not mentioned in this article, of which uh, the thrust that's being described here actually reflects this other presuppositionalist, not Vantill, not Bonson. I'll tell you why, okay? I'll tell you who, and then I'll tell you why. All right. So Dr. Ross says the apologetics thrust of biblical presuppositionalism is to show the consistency of a biblical worldview while exposing the flaws in competing worldviews. What's missing from this description of the apologetic thrust of presuppositionalism that was most definitely uh, taught in Van Til and Bonson? Okay. Remember, to demonstrate the consistency of the Christian worldview is not the same as demonstrating the truth of the Christian worldview. I'm going to say that again. That's, that's ridiculously important. Okay. Demonstrating the consistency of the Christian worldview is not the same as demonstrating the truth of the Christian worldview. Now, while it's true that if the Christian worldview is true, it must also be consistent, right? We're, but the but Van Til is not merely arguing for um, consistency, okay? As a matter of fact, the the presuppositional apologist, the presuppositional apologist that is not mentioned here, but is actually this apologetic thrust as described by Dr. Ross here, uh, who that is describing is actually Gordon Clark, okay? Now, this is important. Now, Gordon Clark, if we were to have the umbrella of pres of 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 presuppositional apologetical methodologies, uh, Gordon Clark uh, is considered a, a presuppositionalist, okay? Now, uh, another presuppositionalist, Scott Oliphant, points out, I think, a very important issue, and that issue is with the nomenclature presuppositional, okay? When we speak of presuppositional apologetics, that term is not specific enough, okay? And so I actually agree with Dr. Oliphant that we shouldn't call presuppositional apologetics presuppositional apologetics um, because it's confusing. Um, and by the way, the confusion is, is, bore out, is borne out 
right here in this description here is because now what is described in this apologetic thrust, okay, uh, is Clarkian apologetics, okay? Uh, it's not describing Van Tillian apologetics because Van Til did not simply argue, and Bonson as well, did not simply argue for the consistency of the Christian worldview. He argued for the truth of the Christian worldview. You notice that that subtle difference here? Um, we're not arguing axioms, right? Um, you know, Clark, for example, argued, if, if people ask me this question all the time, you know, hey, Eli, what's the difference between, you know, Van Til and Gordon Clark, okay? By the way, if I can give a commercial, a brief commercial here, uh, let me get this out. Let me minimize this real quick. There we go. There we go. Everyone always complains that my head's really big in these videos. I'm so sorry. I do all this stuff by myself, and so I, I can't have to reach the camera to adjust things, so I apologize. Um, okay, so what is the difference between uh, Van Til and Gordon Clark? And this is, an, this is important, all right? Gordon Clark appealed to axioms, and he believed that you build the rest of your worldview from those axioms. Okay, uh, so, um, you know, uh, for Gordon Clark, his axiom, his starting point, if you will, was that the Bible is the word of God. Okay, and when we talk about the Bible, we talk about the 66 books of the Bible, of the Old and New Testament. And he believed that from all the propositions that are held within scripture, you can build a worldview. Okay, um, you can uh, deduce from principles in scripture a fully robust worldview system. And by the way, um, to demonstrate that, that this was possible, I mean, he, um, Dr. Clark wrote prolifically in all different areas showing that the Christian worldview can inform all, uh, all sorts of aspects of the Christian world and life view. By the way, while I'm not a Clarkian, I think um, folks would be greatly blessed and greatly enriched to actually take the time to read Gordon Clark. I, I highly recommend Gordon. Because, as a matter of fact, this is my kind of my dark, dirty little secret. I'm at, I actually, Gordon Clark's actually one of my favorite Christian philosophers. And I don't agree with him in everything, but his presuppositional critiques of unbelieving worldviews is fantastic. I mean, I have, I have one of his books here. Ah, okay. Here is his really his masterpiece. Okay. He actually wrote, let me get this here. Uh, he actually wrote a philosophy text, okay, entitled Thales to Dewey, okay? And he actually surveys um, the history of, of philosophy and Western thought, literally from the Greek philosopher Thales, uh, examining all of the pre-Socratics all the way up until modern times. And he actually uh, provides... Uh, criticisms of of a lot of these folks and the inadequacy of these other worldview perspectives to um you know to provide a consistent um uh, a consistent uh worldview perspective right for for uh for Gordon Clark the issue was not demonstrating the truth of your worldview it was demonstrating that the Christian worldview was most consistent and this is important there's an important element of, of Gordon Clark's uh, methodology and not only was consistency an issue for Clark, is that the Christian worldview also answered the hard worldview questions. It solved more, more problems than some of these other inadequate perspectives. And what Gordon Clark focused um, a lot of his work in doing is showing the beautiful consistency of the Christian worldview when you start with his axiom, 
the Bible is the word of God. But here's the thing, and here's the, the key difference between uh, Dr. Clark and, and, and Van Til, is that axioms, by definition, cannot be demonstrated because you cannot validate the truth of your axiom by appealing to something more fundamental to your axiom. You see how that works? So, so if I have an axiom, this is my starting point. How would I demonstrate the truth of my starting point? Okay. Well, I can't demonstrate the truth of my starting point by appealing to something more foundational to validate it. Because once I appeal to something other than my axiom, my axiom is no longer my axiom, right? It's no longer my starting point. There's this other thing that I'm appealing to that's validating. So, so, so for Clark, he believed you start with an axiom. As a matter of fact, um, you can pick any axiom. Um, uh, Dr. Clark actually had no problem being called a fideist. You know, he just had the starting point and this is the starting point, right? And from that starting point, you can build this beautifully consistent worldview, okay? Now, the difference between Clark and Van Til is that while, while Van Til would agree that we have a starting point and he would agree that you do not demonstrate the truth of your starting point by an appeal to something more fundamental than your starting point, he, he believed that. But Van Til went one step further and said, but you could still demonstrate the truth, not simply the consistency of your system, the truth of your axiom. He didn't call it an axiom. He kind of is a, a you know, I would say, uh, you know, one's ultimate presupposition. Van Til believed you can demonstrate the truth of one's ultimate presupposition transcendentally. Okay. So whereas Clark says you can't go beyond the axiom, you can't really demonstrate its truth um, because you can't go anywhere, you know, you can't go anywhere more fundamental than it. Uh, Van Til says you could demonstrate the truth of your axiom, if I could borrow that term, by arguing transcendentally, by the impossibility of the contrary. And he, and he presented his indirect argument uh, to try to do that. Okay. Um, now this is this is um, aside from the fact as to whether you think Van Til successfully um, provided a transcendental argument or whether you think Bonson uh, defended the transcendental argument for the Christian worldview. Uh, regardless, if you think it works, the key difference is is that Bonson and Van Til did not simply argue for consistency; they argued for the truth of the Christian worldview. And so when um, Hugh Ross um, Dr. Ross says the apologetics thrust of biblical presuppositionalism, which I'm assuming he's referring to Van Til and Bonson, because those are the two folks he's, he's talking about here, is, is to show the consistency of a biblical worldview while exposing the flaws in competing worldviews. You see that that's, that actually is not quite uh, what they were doing. As a matter of fact, Bonson at the beginning of his debates would say that I believe, okay, this is kind of almost a direct quote. He says, I believe that the Christian faith is objectively demonstrable. He actually believes you could demonstrate it objectively. Um, so it's not this, we're just shooting for consistency here. But as I said before, if a position is true, it is also consistent. And part of the presuppositional task is to show consistency, but it's not mere consistency. If you if you stop at mere consistency, then you're not really at Van Til and Bonson. You're really in the Clarkian realm where you're shooting for consistency and then pointing out inconsistencies in someone else's uh, perspective. Okay. So I hope that distinction is, is understood. I think it's an important distinction if you're going to represent Van Til and, and Bonson. Again, um, I, I'm not faulting Hugh Ross for this. I'm just based upon the things that he said in the past. I think it's important to kind of clarify on these, on these various points that that's all I'm saying here.
Okay. All right. Let's continue. All right. Let me change the format here. And again, if you have any questions, um, if I'm if I'm able. If I'm able to, I will try my best to answer your questions. If not, um, if you don't have any questions, you're just kind of chilling. I and mean, this was kind of last second, you know, I kind of posted this and I was like, I have some time. Let me go live. Um, if you don't have any questions, that, that's fine as well. Okay. All right. Let me uh, switch the size here. Boop, 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 and let's go. Okay. So, so he says the apologetic thrust of biblical presuppositionalism is to show the consistency of a biblical worldview while exposing the flaws and competing worldviews. Now that part I think is, is correct. Okay. So one of the aspects of the presuppositional methodology is to show the flaws in competing worldview systems. Okay. We would call that from within the uh, presuppositional perspective, we would call that the internal critique. Okay. The internal critique. And this is vitally important if you're going to understand how to do presuppositional apologetics uh, well. Okay. Van Til taught, and I'll kind of share the screen here again uh, in a moment. Van Til taught that when we defend the Christian worldview, we're defending the Christian worldview as a system, as a worldview system. Okay. Um, and so we're not, we're not arguing uh, in, in, in what Van Til would say a block house uh, fashion. We're not, you know, building one fact here and then building another fact here and then conclude that Christianity is true. We're arguing for the truth of the system. Okay. And because we're arguing for the truth of a system, when you are engaging in objecting to the Christian faith, it doesn't do any good to bring objections to the Christian faith from outside from another worldview perspective, while standing on the unbelieving perspective, you are in essence throwing rocks at the Christian perspective. But wait a minute. When you have the engagement between the believer and unbeliever, you have a clash of worldview systems, okay? And so if you're going to throw rocks from one worldview to the other, what's going to happen? Well, the Christian is going to take that rock or that argument and interpret it in light of his own Christian presuppositions. In like fashion, when the Christian throws rocks from uh, his or her worldview to the unbelieving perspective, what is the unbeliever going to do? The unbeliever is going to filter that through his unbelieving presuppositions. And if you don't think this happens, watch various debates and you'll see uh, that when push comes to shove, when you get down to the foundations, one of the reasons why unbelievers reject uh, various arguments and Christian claims is that at a fundamental level, they don't have uh, the same worldview presuppositions. Uh, they have different epistemologies, different theories of knowledge. Uh, they have a different metaphysic, a different theory of what the nature of reality is. Okay. Uh, they have a different ethic. Okay. Um, and, uh, and what is inherent within um, these non-Christian perspectives is the assumption of autonomy with respect to uh, uh, human reason and neutrality. Let's look at the issues, you know, and follow the evidence where it goes as though when you look at the evidence, you know, that we just don't, we don't have presuppositions that literally affect how we interpret the evidence. Well, of course we do. Okay. So um, understanding the worldview engagement, the apologetic engagement as a clash of worldview systems, if you're going to adequately criticize and bypass the filtering process. So if I throw an argument from the Christian perspective over to the unbelieving perspective, in order to uh, effectively bypass that filtering where they're just going to filter it in light of the presuppositions, you engage in what I think Hugh Ross is getting at here, and I think correctly, is um, the internal worldview critique. Okay, And what is an internal worldview critique? An internal critique is when you hypothetically grant the truth of the person's position and show that on its own terms, it falls apart. 
so that it doesn't fall apart because I'm hiding a Christian assumption and then lobbing it over to the unbeliever and look, he can't answer. No, no, no. And a good internal critique will show that given the truth of the person's system, their own system, it falls apart. Okay. And so I would say, I would agree with, with Dr. Ross here that, that, that element, while I disagree with his first part that we're just doing the whole consistency thing, I do agree with him that a big important thrust is this internal uh, uh, critique aspect. So, um, you know, while expo he says, while exposing the flaws in competing worldviews, that's, that's part of it. And not simply, not simply exposing flaws, um, but also showing that if when the unbeliever uh, makes a point or an argument that is intelligible, that does make sense, it is only because the unbeliever is being inconsistent with his or her own presuppositions. That's where you'll hear presuppositionalists use the language, hey, man, you're borrowing from my worldview to argue against my worldview. That's not just a bare, empty claim, okay? Because we think the unbeliever's worldview is incoherent and we try to give reasons as to why it's incoherent, we don't just say it. Well, some people do, but we, we don't just say it. We try to show, look, there's some inconsistencies. When they do lob some you know, good point, we show, well, wait a minute. For that point to even make sense, you actually have to be standing on, on Christian ground. And here's why. Okay. And now the here's why is important. We have to be very careful not to simply just make claims because this is another thing that people accuse presuppositionalists of doing. You know, when we say that the Christian worldview is true by the impossibility of the contrary, you know, people say, well, that's a nice claim, but that doesn't make it true. It's true, right? Um, claiming something doesn't mean it's true. There is an argument there. And so if presuppositionalists want to be effective uh, in their communication and their argumentation, you need to be able to lay that out. I mean, of course, the way you lay out will depend on the nature of the discussion. These debates are not always, you know, nice and neat and you fold it here and this person says this and I say that. Uh, you need to be able to um, adapt, right, to the situation, okay? Okay, so let's uh, let's continue on here. So um, I think both Van Til and Bonson very well crafted the case for using presuppositional apologetics. I 100% I agree that that point I think is, is important to... to uh, to mention, while Van Til often was uh, is, is you find when you read his books is he can be difficult. I don't think he's as difficult as a lot of people think he is. Um, now that's not to say that he's not difficult. Okay, when you read Van Til, you might read and be like, "What in the world is he saying?" But he is clear in a lot of other areas that I think make up for his lack of clarity in others. Uh, what Van Til was really good at was giving little ditties, little examples, little stories to kind of highlight uh, some presuppositional point that perhaps he said in a more convoluted context. So, um, you know, uh, I, I just wanted to point that out. Of course, Bonson, in my opinion, was the clearest in bringing the presuppositional approach of Van Til down to the everyday man. Um, I see Dr. Bonson as a bridge builder from the, uh, um, the academic mind of Van Til to the average person on the streets. As a matter of fact, uh, Bonson was, was very well known for saying that we need to take apologetics to the streets. When I spoke with Dr. Frame some years back, I actually had the privilege of meeting Dr. Frame a long time ago, actually, um, before he retired. And uh, we talked a little bit about Bonson in his office. And he said that one of Bonson's passion was to just, he just wished that people would take apologetics to the street. Um, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why I actually agree with Hugh Ross's, um, the thrust of his response here um, in that um, 
he says that the unbelievers he deals with are looking for these sorts of things. Now, while we have, while we will have methodological differences, I do agree that presuppositionalists need to know how to navigate the evidential landscape. When I say evidential, I don't mean evidentialism. I mean like evidences, all right? Presuppositionalists tend to be very, whoops, they tend to be very good at the big picture, right? Playing the shell game, the 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 worldview game, right? It's kind of in basketball. I was a, I'm a basketball player, you know. Um, well, I used to be back in the day. <laughs> for you, for those who follow me on Facebook, you might have seen uh, a video my cousin shared where I was struggling. Uh, I'm getting old, and and my back is terrible, and I have tendonitis. It's terrible. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be 39 this month on the 30th. So, um, it's not that old, but sometimes I feel older than I am anyway. Um, but if you, uh, when I was playing basketball in high school, uh, we played, you can play, uh, these two ways you can play man to man where, uh, each player will guard another player and you stay with that, with that, with that guy. So if I'm guarding, you know, Kobe, right. Um, I'm going to stay on Kobe. If I'm going to guard, you know, LeBron, I have to stay on Le LeBron or, um, in basketball, you can play the shell game. You can play zone where you're not guarding any one person, but you're creating a shell, a protective shell, and it's a more uh, cohesive way of defense, right? Presuppositionalists are very good at that big picture, um, but they, I, in my opinion, okay, uh, and in my experience, they do lack the ability to um, talk about the specifics, okay? They usually stay uh, out in the shell. And I think in that sense, I agree with the thrust of what, of what Ross, uh, Dr. Ross is saying. I, I do think that in a sense, we need to meet people where they are. Now, I'm going to be careful with that terminology, right? Because I know presuppositionalists who watch that, they'll be like, but wait a minute, Van Til taught that there is no common ground between the believer and the unbeliever. Actually, actually, that's not quite right. Van Til taught that there is common ground between believer and unbeliever. What he taught wasn't the case, okay, was that there was no neutral ground between the believer and unbeliever, right? There is no neutrality, okay? Bonson said this, there is no neutral neutral ground between believer and unbeliever, but there is common ground. And what is that common ground? That common ground is God's ground. It is not a no man's land where I remove myself from my worldview assumptions and the unbeliever removes himself from his worldview assumptions and we can kind of talk on this neutral plane. No, the common ground between the believer and unbeliever is God's ground. Okay, the common ground is that the unbeliever, okay, whether he believes it or not, is created in the image of God. That's right, Mr. Unbeliever. If you are listening to this, whether you believe what I'm saying or not, the Bible teaches that you are created in the image of God. Even in your unbelief, you are valuable. You are you have worth. That's why. I, uh, I hope that Christians show genuine love and respect. I know a lot of these sorts of debates can kind of get really ugly very fast and people can be very disrespectful towards one another. But when we look at unbelievers, we look at them as image bearers of God. Okay. And this image of God cannot be hidden, even though the unbeliever tries to hide it. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is you can't help but be an image bearer of God. If Christianity is true, there's no way you can be anything other than an image bearer of God. And hence, when the presuppositionalist, okay, um, appeals to evidences, okay, sometimes it's good to appeal to certain evidences so that it could expose 
image of God in the unbeliever. Okay, that's why I think there is a great use in, for example, moral arguments. Okay, I remember William Lane Craig said something to the effect that his favorite argument for God's existence was the Kalam cosmological argument. By the way, that's one of my favorite arguments as, as well, um, uh, believe it or not. Um, but he says that, but the most important argument, the argument that comes up the most uh, that resonates with people um, is the moral argument. OK, um, whereas the Kalam, you know, when you're talking about, you know, the differentiation between um, potential infinite and uh, potential infinites and actual infinites. Right. Um, and you try to show that, you know, you can't have, a, a, you know, you can't have an actual infinite number of things and all this sorts of stuff. And you can get into quantum mechanics and big bang cosmology and things like that, who there are folks who can go into those details much better than, than I can. Um that doesn't resonate with a lot of people. There are people in, to which it does resonate, but morality, right? That touches us at a very personal level. Now, of course, you do have people who will flat out, I don't believe in objective morality, um, but, 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 when the lights are off, when the door is closed, when something wrong happens, they get pretty triggered about it. I think that is a good example of the image of God. The Bible says that God has written his law in our heart. That's the image of God seeping out of the unbeliever. I think one of the tasks of the apologist is to expose image of God in the unbeliever by using examples of morality. Yes, you can use examples of science, the preconditions of science and uh, logic. And these are all points of data that can be used in creative ways to expose image of God within the unbeliever. Okay. And I think that's that's very very um, that's a very very important thing to to keep in mind. All right. Now, again, I want to encourage folks. If you do have any questions, I will take the time to go through them and answer them the best I can. Um, but let me continue on. I, if you give me a thumbs up, if you guys are following me, I'm not talking over anybody's head. Um, hopefully, uh, you guys are understanding this, and and hopefully, this is a helpful clarification. Okay. Um, all right. So let's move back to the article here. There we go. All right. Okay. So I think both Van Til and Bonson very well crafted the case for using presuppositional apologetics. Another very good presuppositional apologist I would add to the list is Francis Schaeffer. Yes. Is he, is he, is he faithful to the Van Tillian stream? There's some differences there. Even Van Til took some issue with, but Hey, Francis Schaeffer's a brother and he's got a lot of great stuff You to, to totally check him out. All right. Uh, Dr. Ross continues on to say, I don't think Van Til nor Bonson nor Schaefer were against evidential apologetics. Well, if you mean evidentialism, then then that's incorrect. They were very much against, or at least Bonson and Van Til were very much against evidentialism because these methodologies often presented their arguments in terms of the assumptions of neutrality and autonomy with respect to human reason. Okay. There is a sense in which Van Til had no problem with the traditional proofs. There's, he even says it in, in his books. I don't um, deny, uh, this is not a direct quote, but just trust me that it's in the spirit of the quote, okay? He says, I do not deny um, uh, the usefulness of traditional um, arguments. He, did, he didn't reject the traditional proofs. What he rejected was the often the often assumed autonomy and neutrality that was embedded in these proofs in the manner in which they were traditionally formulated and presented. Okay, so I, that's a very important key. So when we say that Van Til did not reject the traditional proofs, 
That's not saying that Van Til affirmed, therefore, evidential ism or classical ism as a methodology, because inherent within those methodologies are things that Van Til uh, vigorously rejected, the, the assumptions of autonomy and neutrality. And by the way, um, some people might do this, but not all classical and evidentialists say, yes, I'm assuming autonomy. Yes, I'm assuming neutrality. No, it's not that they're going around saying those things necessarily, although there are some, right? Um, sometimes the way they formulate arguments, these assumptions are kind of snuck into the discussion. And Van Til was pointing out, wait a minute, hey, these arguments, some of them are really good, but you want to you want to formulate these arguments in a way that doesn't sacrifice consistency and faithfulness to our biblical commitments, and of which he believed, Van Til believed, um, you know, neutrality and autonomy is going against biblical principles because he thought that that was uh, was against scripture. Okay, so very important things to to keep in mind. All right, so where am I? Okay, so presupposition. Okay, so he says, I don't think Van Til nor Bonson nor Schaefer were against evidential apologetics as many of their followers have presumed. Well, we just addressed that. Good apologetics should include both. Okay. Well, good apologetics is not the conjoining of presuppositional ism and evidential ism. That's not good apologetics. Okay. That's inconsistent apologetics. All right. All right. You can't, you can't mix those two methodologies because they have, uh, they are diametrically opposed to one another in as much as one methodology uh, presupposes uh, whether explicitly or implicitly, neutrality and autonomy. Okay, um, this is very important. All right, um, so I don't think that's that's a good apologetics. Now, what I what I would agree with Dr. Ross, and I think is his thrust, is that we should use many things within the apologetic arsenal, right? When we're discussing things with unbelievers, I agree with that. Okay, so with the spirit of what um, uh, of what Dr. Ross is saying, I agree. All right. For example, um, at my church, there was uh, a gentleman who had some questions about the resurrection of Jesus. Okay. He is not a Christian, but nice, nice fellow. The pastor sent him my way. We got coffee and we, uh, we discussed things and I tried to give, you know, evidence for the resurrection. Right. Um, now when I give evidence for the resurrection, when I engage in kind of a historical, uh, you know, apologetic, uh, you know, I'm not ceasing to be a presuppositionalist. As a matter of fact, Van Til said, now this is a direct quote, when in reference to talking about the resurrection and the reliability of the New Testament, uh, Van Til said, and I quote, I would therefore engage in historical apologetics. Okay? So he wasn't against historical apologetics, but when engaging in historical apologetics, I think he would encourage us to do so presuppositionally. Okay. If you want to know what that looks like, I do think there are two people that come to mind that I think do this well. Um, and, and, and this is regardless of what you think about them in other areas. I do think they do this well. Uh, Dr. James White, I think does a good job in speaking evidentially from within a uh, presuppositional framework. You see this in his debate with Dan Barker. Um, uh, what was, does the triune God of scripture exist? I think that's the name of the debate. Uh, he did another one with him as well. Um, but I think uh, Dr. White does it well. And Michael Kruger, okay? Uh, Michael Kruger um, is an expert in the area of canonicity, right? Uh, the biblical canon. Why, you know, how do we know which books are to be uh, considered canonical, things like this? He, it is interesting, he tackles this whole issue of canonicity 
and the historical and theological development of the canon from within a presuppositional framework. So um, James White, Michael Kruger, who, by the way, I had on my show as well, one of my favorite discussions. It's an older one, but if you haven't listened to my discussion with Michael Kruger, scroll through the videos, take the time and listen to it. It is absolutely an excellent discussion. As a matter of fact, after I did that, um, that interview with Dr. Kruger, in which he was talking about the evidence, but also being consistently presuppositional, I received a message from a, a gentleman who says, I was an evidentialist, but because of this interview, I am now a presuppositionalist because I thought that to be a presuppositionalist, we couldn't use evidence. He's like, but now it makes sense. So whether that converts you or not, <laughs> okay, that's not the issue here, but it is definitely a good discussion to listen to if you haven't already, okay? All right, uh, let's continue on. All right, presuppositional apologetics. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, so uh, as many follow. good apologetics should include both. We just mentioned the, the issue there. Presuppositional apologetics is effective at demonstrating what is not consistent and what is not true. Okay, now this is again, I think Dr. Ross's um, mistake here in assuming presuppositional apologetics is equivalent to say uh, presuppositionalism in the Clarkian sense, right? That presuppositional apologetics is effective at demonstrating was not consistent. Presuppositional apologetics is good at critiquing other perspectives, but it's not adequate to show the truth of the Christian worldview, right? Right, that's what he's getting at. To do that, you need evidential apologetics. Okay. Evidential apologetics is effective in establishing what is consistent and what is true. Okay. And then he goes on to say, most unbelievers need to be exposed to both kinds of apologetics in order to come to faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and savior. Okay. So I hope you see the, the, the subtle uh, mistake that's being made here. Presuppositional apologetics is effective at demonstrating what is not consistent and what is not true. How can that be the case if Van Til and Bonson argued for the truth of the Christian worldview via a transcendental argument. What is the difference between, say, an evidential sort of argument or a classical sort of argument and a transcendental argument? Well, it, it comes in the difference of kind of this direct and indirect form of argumentation. So a direct form of argumentation would come in the form of a lot of the traditional arguments. You know, if I were to use the Kalam, you know, whatever begins to exist as a cause, the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And then we kind of defend the premises. You're using a positive uh, case. Okay. Van Til used an indirect case for the truth of Christianity. But it was an indirect argument for the truth of Christianity, not demonstrating simply that it's consistent. Okay. So, uh, again, I think this is a common mistake here. All right. So he says,
See that? I got kicked off my own show. Look at that. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I don't know what happened. So um, I think I got kicked by something. Literally a big thing across the screen said something went wrong. Thanks a lot, StreamYard. Anyway. All right. Are you guys, you guys can see me okay now? Someone give me a thumbs up. Somebody let me know that I'm still here. Okay. All right. Any, any, anyone thumbs up? Okay. I'm just going to keep going. All right. That made me lose my train of thought. So I don't know where I was going. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, okay, now I need to reshare. Okay, thanks for the thumbs up. Let me share my screen again. Share, share, share. Doobie, doobie, doobie. We want to share the article, not the not my Amazon shopping list. Maybe I should X that out. There we go. None of you guys care about what I'm shopping for. Okay. Okay, so he says, my answer is that Christians need to be equipped to use all five method. So again, so I hope you know why that's, that shouldn't be the case. You shouldn't know how to use all five methods. Okay. You want to use your method that is consistent with your other presuppositional, um, uh, uh commitments. You don't want to be inconsistent in, in that regard. Okay. Um, okay. So he says, my answer is that Christians need to be equipped to use all five methods and that the methods one chooses to employ depend upon the person with whom one is sharing their faith. Okay. Again, I disagree. And I agree in a sense. Okay. So if I'm a presuppositionalist, all right, am I going to speak the same way to everyone that I encounter? Right. Am I always going to say when I engage an unbeliever, when someone says, well, how do you know Christianity is true? You know, am I always going to say because of the impossibility of the contrary? No. Am I always going to say, Hey, you know, God, but you're no, I'm not going to say that either. Okay. Um, you know, there might be a context to say some of those things, but, um, conversations are sloppy. Okay. Well, you're not always having this ordered discussion where all these things kind of fit nicely in the conversation. All right. I try my best to meet people where they are and engage their direct questions. Okay. And when the question, when I give responses and there's some pushback and the reason for that pushback is this kind of this underlying presuppositional thing, then I bring those things into play. But there are some people who say, hey, you know, how, how, how can I know that, you know, what are some good reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And I say, okay, well, here are some good reasons. Reason number one, reason number two, reason number three, reason number four, reason number five. And then I answer questions related to, but what about this? What about this? You know, what, what about the spoon theory? What about the hallucination theory? And I give responses here and the person says, all right, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you give me a lot to, to think about. Do I say, wait, wait, Mr. Unbeliever, you can't leave. Okay. You need to first consider that along with all these other things, you can't make sense out of any. No, I wouldn't do that. Okay. Well, it's true. And that point needs to come out at some point if, if you know, uh, when the situation calls for it, there's nothing wrong with meeting people where they are, okay? Common ground, not neutral ground, common ground, and answering their questions directly. You don't always need to launch into uh, a transcendental argument and appeals to universal logical laws and things like that, okay? They have their place. But presuppositional apologetics is not only that. As a matter of fact, there's another good book. Let me take it. Here we go. It's an oldie, and I don't even know if you can get it. So this might just be a tease. Um, but if you're interested in how a presuppositionalist might use evidence, there's this little book called Van Til 
and the use of evidence. Now, if you look it up, it's probably like a thousand dollars on Amazon. As a matter of fact, <laughs> let's do something here. Let's see here. If I go to Amazon right now, how much is this bad boy? Okay. Uh, Van Til and the use of evidence. Let's see if it's on sale anywhere. Nope, not available. Okay. It's not even available in like a crazy expensive. Uh, well, I guess you can't buy it. <laughs> okay. You can't buy it. But um, if you could find it somewhere, okay. I, 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 I knew a guy who knew Van Til and he had a whole bunch of books. Obviously, it looks super old. Uh, this is a good book. Maybe you can find it online or something like that. But at any rate, um, yes, the presuppositionalists can use evidence. We can answer people's questions directly uh, without having to always say by what standard. Okay. But by the way, if you're a presuppositionalist and you get a lot of heat because we often say by what standard, don't worry about it because by what standard is a perfectly good question to ask. Okay. And you should not be bullied by your classical friends or your atheist friends who say, Oh, here he goes again with by what standard. Okay. By what standard is a perfectly valid question. And if you can't answer, if you don't have a standard, then that that's a, that's a valid point to make. So you definitely don't want to, um, uh, just repeat it over and over again. You need to be able to expand on your points. Right. Um, but there, there's nothing wrong in saying it. All right. Almost done. And then we'll go to some questions here. Thank you so much for uh, sticking around, folks. I think there are a couple of questions there, so I'll, I'll try to get to them in just a moment. Uh, but let's bring this back on the screen, like not like that. Okay, like this. All right, boom, boom, boom. Okay, so he says my answer. Da, 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 da. Okay, I believe it is always wise to ask questions of an unbeliever to determine which one or combination of apologetic methods. Uh, will be most helpful in assisting the non-Christian into becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, okay? Again, I believe it is always wise to uh, to ask enough questions. By the way, I agree. Ask questions, okay? Not every unbeliever you're going to come in contact with is a uh, internet atheist YouTuber that's going to give you a hard time over things that he probably shouldn't give you a hard time. And if he just agreed on certain points, he can move on into the discussion. Not every unbeliever is like that, okay? There are some unbelievers who, by the way, the Spirit of God may be working in. And so that's why they're asking these questions. So you don't always have to assume uh, the worse, uh, you know, when an unbeliever asks, you know, genuine questions, okay? Uh, so I do believe you should ask questions and based upon their answers, that will affect how you'll go about, um, engaging them. Okay. But what I disagree with Dr. Ross here, right? He says, I believe it is always wise to ask enough questions of an unbeliever to determine which one or combination of apologetic methods, right? We don't do that. If you're going to be a presuppositionalist, you want to be consistent, but if you're going to ask questions, that's going to help you so that it could inform how you will apply your presuppositionalism. Okay. Does that make sense? I'll say that again. It's important for us to ask questions, not so that we can see what method we're going to use because we want to be consistent, but to see how we will apply our presuppositionalism in that particular context. Why? Because as a presuppositionalist who believes that presuppositionalism flows out of scripture, we want to engage the unbeliever regardless of what sorts of questions they ask in a way that's consistent with those convictions. Okay. Now, if you're a classicalist or an evidentialist and you disagree, well, you know, that's fine. But what I'm saying here as a presuppositionalist, you want to be consistent. All right. And so it is appropriate to talk about evidences, but evidence don't exist in a vacuum. It's okay to talk about facts, but facts don't exist in a vacuum. 
but you don't always have to talk about the transcendental stuff all the time. Okay. Although it will be in the background, it's the background music of your mind. And you're always presenting the specifics with the context of the Christian worldview. And when that comes up, you need to address it. Okay. Um, so that's important. So I do believe you do need to ask questions. Um, and then he says, the reasons why I focus so much of my ministry at reasons to believe on evidential apologetics is because the non-Christian I most frequently engage need evidence, especially new evidences in order to believe that the Bible is the inspired inerrant word of God and that Jesus Christ is creator, Lord, and savior. Now for that, I do not fault Dr. Ross. Okay. Um, yeah, he has, um, he has a ministry. Right. Um, you see this uh, in the same thing with um, with Jason Lyle, who is an astrophysicist. He's a scientist. Right. Um, so he has a specific focus. You're not going to see Dr. Lyle uh, engage hours and hours doing videos on Islam. He can cover it, by the way. I mean, he's addressed it in some of his books. That's not his central focus. Right. His central focus is creation. Right. Discussing evolution, things like that. OK. Um, so I don't fault, um, you know, I don't fault. Dr. Ross for that. This is his ministry. This is the area that he feels called to. And I think he should be free to exercise those giftings as, as, as he sees fit given that specific context. So yeah, if you're, if you're talking to people who are asking specific questions, meet them where they are in the sense of respond to those questions, but you also always want to get to the heart of the issue. Um, because as you know, as some presuppositional or uh, presuppositionalists are apt to say, and someone mentioned Sai in the comments there, I've heard this from Sai, and I agree with Sai in this regard. He says that it's pointless in arguing with the unbeliever for three hours over the complexity of the human eye when that unbeliever is going to hell. I mean that that that's that's simple, right? We want to get to the gospel, all right. And so this is something we uh, evidentialists are guilty of, classicalists are guilty of presuppositionalists are guilty of is that we can be so um, enamored with the philosophical, with the evidential, with the historical, all of these side discussions, which are vitally important. I'm not undermining that at all, but we can, so we can be so enamored with those things that we never get to the gospel. And that should be our goal, getting to the gospel. And so we need to be able to pivot those sorts of discussions, right? Talk about the evidence, talk about worldviews, talk about logic, all these sorts of things. But we need to know when it's when it's appropriate to pivot to the gospel. That's why I, I really appreciate the presuppositional um, apologetic methodology, its desire to get to the uh, exposing the image of God with the within the unbeliever. Because when that image of God comes through, and it comes in the discussion, in the conversation, where he's like, hey, listen, man, the reason why you're saying that is you are made in the image of God. You can't suppress this stuff for too long because these things bubble up to the surface. You are made in the image of God. And at that moment, we pivot to the gospel. I think that's a very important um, thing to keep in mind. All right? All right. Well, we have just uh, completed an hour uh, and seven minutes and... 16 seconds. Um, and now I'm going to go through some questions and I'll try my best to answer uh, some of them. Thank you so much guys for listening in and um, just, you know, stick around as we're going to go through here. So let's see here. Uh, do, 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 do. Uh, okay. Let's see here. I have to scroll through it one by one. That's my, my primitive way of going through the questions. Uh, let's see here. Oh. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, let's see here. So Slam RN says, Hugh Ross said, not against evidential apologetics, not evidentialism. You seem to be parsing terms. Um, that would be true, uh, Slam RN. <laughs> How do you say, is it just Slam RN? I just call you Slam RN. Okay, uh, you've come to a lot of the live streams. I appreciate your questions all the time and your comments. Thank you. Um, it would be the case that I'm merely parsing terms if that's all he, he wrote. But if you remember in the article, he mentioned methods, right? Using multiple methods. It's not simply evidential in the sense of like using evidences. He's talking about moving from evidentialism to presuppositionalism to um, accommodate the sort of person you're engaging with, right? So if there's a person who you want to expose the inconsistencies in their worldview, use presuppositional apologetics, but use evidential apologetics, okay? when you're trying to build up a case. Now, Hugh Ross is not an evident, is not a presuppositionalist in the sense um, you know, that we would, we would identify presuppositional apologist, right? Um, he is talking about jumping in and out of methodologies. I mean, let's take a look at what he says here. While, while it's true where he says uh, here, evidential apologetics, um, it's clear that he's referring to meth specific methods when he goes uh, goes on down here and he says, um, doo -doo -doo, he says, my answer is that Christians need to be equipped to use all five methods. What methods? Well, the methods that are defended in the five views on apologetics. See? So um, I think it's clear that that's what he is uh, getting at. So I think you'd be correct. I would be parsing terms if that is all he said. If he just said evidential apologetics, um, evidential um, is not necessarily evidentialism, but I think it's it's clear that it's evidentialism given the context of what he's saying and what I've heard him say in the past um, as well. So thank you for that. I hope that clarifies. Uh, let's see here. All right, let's see. Redefine living says, because literal creation needs to be true for the for the precept argument to be complete, if he does not believe in literal creation because of an old earth position and he's not going to like the argument. Okay. All right. So there are a couple of things here. And I think that I'm actually glad that uh, Redefine Living um, uh, brought this up. Okay. Now, if, if Dr. Ross was here, uh, he would tell you, I believe in literal creation. Okay. But what literal, what is being meant in this question by Redefine Living, literal creation is the 24-hour young earth position, okay? So that's what that's what you're saying. So if you guys have watched my past live streams on this topic, I'm actually agnostic with respect to which view I hold, whether a young earth or old earth perspective. And I, I get a lot of flack sometimes. Like, come to the dark side. Come, no, come to this side, you know? Come to the young, you come to the young earth perspective. We have cookies, you know? I, I, people go back and forth. And uh, to be honest, when I read the, the Genesis, it's not as simple as a lot of people uh, make it. And so um, I am an agnostic with respect to that. Now, with respect to the relationship between um, literal, if we're going to talk about literal being the young earth position, okay, and Dr. Ross would argue his position is literal as well, since you could have multiple literal uh, um, understandings of, of, say, for example, the day yom uh, for day. Um, here's where I would actually slightly disagree with Jason Lyle, Okay. And I, I say this carefully because I, I appreciate Lyle. I think he's an excellent presuppositionalist. Um, but what I disagree is his necessary, necessarily connecting um, 
presuppositionalism with a particular interpretation of Genesis. Okay. Um, I, it doesn't seem clear to me that in order to be a consistent presuppositionalist, you must be a young earth creationist. I don't, I don't see the connection there. As a matter of fact, I'm not the only, uh, presuppositionalist who, who thinks that. I, I think uh, Dr. Scott Oliphant um, took issue with that when he was on uh, on stage, both with, um, well, he, Hugh Ross wasn't there, but uh, Jason Lyle was there. And, and he, he took issue um, with this necessarily connecting young earth creationism with presuppositionalism. An essential feature of presuppositionalism is a revelational epistemology and uh, the fact that God has revealed himself, both in general and special revelation, that the Bible is the word of God, that it is inerrant, it is infallible, right? Uh, it informs our metaphysic, our epistemology, our ethic. Um, I think that if Hugh Ross wanted to be a Vantillian presuppositionalist and maintain an old earth creationist perspective, I don't see how that would be inconsistent because he's still holding the Bible to be his ultimate authority. Now, you might argue, but wait a minute, I know Hugh Ross. He says the Bible is his ultimate authority, but he interprets the Bible in light of science, right? For him, science is the ultimate authority, okay? Regardless of whether that's, that's true or not, obviously, if, if science is lording over scripture, then, then there's a problem. But I think the big issue that Dr. Ross tries to put forth is the interpretation of scripture, Okay. Um, now you might agree or disagree with his whole issue of the two books, you know, the book of nature and the book of the Bible, the books of the Bible, whatever. Um, but I, um, I think that if you interpreted Genesis, because you think that that's what the Bible's teaching within an old earth paradigm, I'm not even saying it's true. I'm just saying, if you believe that that's what the Bible teaches for various exegetical reasons that you might hold and let's, and let's be fair. Okay. Old earth creationists. Um, they're not idiots, okay? All right? They do have biblical reasons as to why they hold their their perspective. You might not agree with those biblical positions. I might not agree with some of the arguments they use, but they do argue from Scripture. If their interpretation is correct, I don't see how that affects their use of presuppositionalism. Now, if there is this inherent sneaking in of, say, something more authoritative than Scripture, say, like science, then yes, I would say that there's an inconsistency there in the application of a presuppositional paradigm. Okay. So, um, I, 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 again, so I don't see that in order to be a presuppositionalist, you have to be a young earth creationist. It just so happens that most presuppositionalists I do know are young earth creationists. Um, so, so maybe there is something there, but I don't see the necessary connection. Um, so that's just me. I hope that kind of, uh, clarifies some things. All right. Uh, Mr. C says one can do the same thing using Lord of the Flies as a worldview reference. Um, it depends what he means here. So if he's saying if someone could say, hey, I'm going to use the Lord of the Rings as my foundation for metaphysics and epistemology and things like that, um, have fun trying. OK, um, I'm not sure if Mr. C uh, is meaning to say what I'm what I'm saying, but uh, a common misunderstanding of um, the presuppositional argumentation is that when we argue for the truth of the Christian worldview um, and that it provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience, that that's merely an assertion. So that's because it's simply an assertion, you can substitute Christian worldview is the necessary precondition of intelligible experience and knowledge. You can substitute Christian worldview with anything else, right? You presuppose the Bible as your ultimate authority. I presuppose Lord of the Flies. 
or I presuppose Lord of the Rings, or I presuppose the Quran, or I presuppose the Book of Mormon. Okay, that's only valid if the presuppositional argument is simply an assertion. It's not. It's an argument. You don't have to agree with the argument. I'm not granting that it's false, but even if it was false, okay, it, to, to, to make this assertion, if I'm understanding Mr. C correctly, is to completely misunderstand what the presuppositionalist is actually getting at. Okay? All right. Thank you, Mr. C, for that. Uh, let's see here. Do, 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 do. Yeah, Slam RN says when Gordon Clark passed away, John Robbins, who studied under Clark and Greg Bonson, were at each other's throats through heated exchanges. That is true. As a matter of fact, when I spoke with Dr. Frame all those years ago, uh, one of the things he spoke about briefly was just the um, the unnecessary division that a lot of these in-house discussions have have brought about. And to that, um, I mean, I'm not. I'm a leading voice in the presuppositional, you know, presuppositional circles, you know. Um, but I am trying my best to not do that. I, I hope that that my heart comes across in that, even even in critiquing, you know, uh, some of uh, Dr. Ross's points here. Um, I don't mean any ill will towards him. And I think God can use both of us, even in our disagreements. Right. Um, you know, we are all, you know, we could strike a blow with a broken stick in a sense, we're all broken sticks and we're just doing our best um, to be used by God. And so um, hopefully um, these sorts of discussions don't bring about that unnecessary division, which unfortunately was kind of the dark and ugly side of these earlier uh, debates. So that's quite unfortunate. Um, and uh, yeah. So yeah, you're right. There there was some vigorous argumentation after, after the passing of Gordon Clark. Okay, let's see here. Let's see here. Please excuse me while I sift through the comments. All right, we got some more since the. Isaiah the layman says, Love how you're correcting negation of P from his failure of doing an internal critique. Uh, during your debate. Yeah, I debated a, a gentleman by the name of Negation of P. And um, this that's why I said it's important to understand the issue of external versus internal critiques. Because because of uh, negation, if you can go back and listen to the debates on my channel, um, because of negation of P's inability to adequately internally critique the Christian worldview, I think all of his arguments fell flat. And the same thing happened with uh, Eric Murphy, who is a, another atheist that I had a discussion with. That, that discussion could also be found on my channel as well. Um, it took a while for him to even understand the concept of external internal critique. And then when he finally got it, he did what he was supposed to do and internally critique my perspective. Now, the problem is he didn't internally critique it adequately because he misrepresented it. And so I tried to point that out. Um, but yeah, you need to know this and the importance of, of internal critiques. And, and, and not only do we as Christians internally critique the unbelieving perspective, the unbeliever is going to internal, if, if he gets the situation, it's like, okay, I'm going to provide an internal critique of the Christian worldview. The Christian needs to respond to the internal critique of the Christian worldview. Okay. And I always tell people the best way, okay, this is important. The best way to survive. Okay. The best way to survive the internal critique of the unbeliever upon the Christian worldview is to know the Christian worldview. 
You need to know the Christian faith. You need to be grounded in, in solid Christian theology. You need to be grounded in what the Bible actually teaches because when the unbeliever hypothetically grants the truth of the Bible and then tries to point out inconsistencies at various points, whether it's um, apparent contradictions in the text or whether it's apparent contradictions within the very concept of the Christian God, you're going to need to know your own faith so that you could adequately survive um, and respond to the internal critique being put forth against you. So um, it's not simply the case that we're internally critiquing the unbeliever. The unbeliever is also going to in, uh, internally critique us, and you need to be able to adequately respond to that. Okay? All right. Let's see here. Okay. Isaiah says, how do you prove the impossibility of the contrary that Christianity is true transcendentally? Well, let's, let's explain what a transcendental uh, argument is. Okay. A transcendental argument is an argument that asks, what are the preconditions for knowledge? What are the preconditions for intelligible experience? What must be true in order for anything to be intelligible? Okay. And so basically we're asking which worldview provides those necessary preconditions for those, those things, right? And so um, when we argue for the truth of the Christian worldview by the impossibility of the contrary, we're basically saying that the Christian worldview system provides uh, the necessary prerequisites, the, the necessary environment for something like truth to obtain, intelligibility to obtain. And so one of the ways that we demonstrate its truth is to show that the Christian worldview can, in fact, provide those preconditions. Now, when we speak of um, a worldview providing the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience, what you can't have is multiple worldviews, both adequately and sufficiently provide those necessary preconditions because you can't have two or three ultimate foundations that provide the preconditions for intelligible experience. You can't. You can't have two. When you have two, you actually run into a uh, a form of skepticism in which you have multiple metaphysical situations, but different accounts, different metaphysics, but different accounts of the of the nature of reality. And even though they're at odds with each other, they're both accurately describing reality. You can't you can't have that. That actually is is incoherent. You're actually stuck in kind of a a metaphysical and epistemological pluralism at that point. So you can only have one. Um, necessary precondition for intelligible experience. And so part of the task of demonstrating the truth of the Christian worldview is to show that the Christian worldview actually provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. And you can go through various um, uh, points uh, to demonstrate that. Now, here's the thing. If Christianity can provide those preconditions and you're able to explain it and lay it out, okay, if it is a worldview, that provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience, then it follows that it must be the only worldview. Why? Because you can only have one worldview that provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. You can only have one. And if Christianity is one, it has to be the only one. Now, of course, stating that and arguing that and laying that out, your job doesn't stop because, of course, the unbeliever is not going to think that's correct. He's like, well, surely Christianity can't be the only one. What about this hypothetical one? Okay, still. If Christianity is one, right? You've actually demonstrated here. Here, the, the necessary precondition for intelligible, for intelligible experience. Christianity supplies that. If it is one, it must be the only one. Now, if there's a hypothetical one that we don't know about, that perhaps is the true one. Well, I have a problem. If the unbeliever states this hypothetical, the unbeliever is not standing on the truth of that hypothetical because he a denies the Christian worldview 
B, he doesn't know the hypothetical worldview. And C, he's making his argument from his current worldview, which hopefully, if the apologist has done his job, has shown to be in itself insufficient even to ground the intelligibility of the very positing of a hypothetical. Okay? So um, if Christianity is one, it must be the only one. And to demonstrate that, we need to also engage the unbeliever to show that even when they argue against our position, because the unbeliever's position has no ground, to make any ground whatsoever, he has to presuppose the truth of the perspective that we've already demonstrated actually provides those necessary preconditions, okay? Now, there's going to be more to unpack because there can be various uh, points that someone could raise, but you take those points one by one, sort of like when you're defending, uh, for example, you know, if you take someone like, like Dr. Craig, right, and his debates, and William Lane Craig in his debates lays out, you know, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the moral argument, you know, he appeals to religious experience, and then, you know, he uh, he brings this case, just as you lay out your case and you say, therefore God exists, your job isn't done because you now have to respond to various uh, objections. Okay. Um, and that's just, that's just part of the game. And that's why we make a distinction between, uh, well, the difference between proving something and persuading something, persuading someone. So I can prove, for example, that the Christian worldview is true by the impossibility of the contrary, but that's not the same as persuading someone of my argument. That's different. Okay. Uh, the persuasion is a, is a, is a different deal. My job is to prove that in, in theological terms, it's actually the Holy Spirit's job to persuade, right? Isn't that right? That the, it's the spirit that actually works along with what I'm saying, uh, to change, uh, the heart, uh, things like that. So, um, that's how I would go. That's how I would answer that question. Um, at least in a thumbnail sketch. Thank you for that. All right, let's see here. Yeah, redefine redefine living says, for example, moral arguments against God. Where did you get that moral standard? Yeah, that that's a, the, uh, the moral argument is a sort of transcendental argument, right? Now it's not the transcendental argument like that Van Til was giving. Like, um, you see, Van Til's transcendental argument is different than transcendental arguments in general. So you so you could have um, localized transcendental arguments like the moral argument right? What must be true in order for objective morality to exist? You know, you're asking what the preconditions are for objective moral values and duties. So it's in a sense, a transcendental argument, but it's not the transcendental argument in the sense that what Van Til was getting was arguing for the whole package deal of Christianity. But that doesn't make useless the moral argument. The moral argument has its place to kind of touch on that moral issue, which I think is a, is a good way of exposing the image of God in the unbeliever, right? When you bring those, those points out. Okay. So I, I think that's a, um, uh, there, there we go. Those are my thoughts there. Let's see here. Uh, let's see here. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Redefine love, redefine living. You said, I said something about presenting presuppositional arguments, you know, in a respectful way. Sometimes it's hard not to get triggered. Yes, that's true. That's true. But, but what governs, what governs you're not getting triggered? Well, it is your desire to defend the faith in a way that is honoring to God and consistent with scripture. And what is honoring to God and consistent with scripture is defending the faith with gentleness and respect, right? We're not to be unnecessarily quarrelsome. We're not to be, uh, you know, argumentative for the sake of argument of being argumentative. We need to be slow to anger, right? Um, we need to be able to listen to the, what the person's saying. These are all important communication skills, which the Bible talks about. So you're, you're correct. It is hard not to get triggered, uh, but maturity, Christian maturity requires that we don't get triggered, right? So uh, that takes work. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. 
see. We're going to go. Da, da, da. All right. Mr. C here says, are you saying that an unbeliever can't have value outside of a book? I know atheists that have much more personal value than experienced believers. Uh, well, um, are you saying that an unbeliever can't have value outside of a book? Um, well, I would say that um, I wouldn't just say it's a book. Um, I would say the book that you're referring to is the inspired word of God. And so I would say that an unbeliever can't have objective, right? Big picture, capital O, objective value. Okay. If there is no God, I agree. Uh, all is sound and fury signifying nothing. You could have value in a subjective sense. Like you can create value for yourself, but that's not objectively. That's not, you know, that's not, and you don't have intrinsic value in the ultimate sense, right? Yeah, I would, I would agree. That's, that's right. That's why, and I'm not the only one who says this. I mean, there are some atheistic philosophers uh, throughout history who have affirmed that without God, everything's permissible, right? Without God, there's no enduring ultimate objective value. Yeah, that's right. Um, without God. Now, when you say just outside of a book, um, well, my argument never is that you can't have value, uh, outside of a book. I'm saying you can't have objective value outside of God, right? But good thing God exists and you have value, Mr. C. Uh, so I'll, I'll throw that in there. You say, I know atheists that have much more personal value than experienced believers. Um, personal value is personal value being equated with objective value. And how do you gauge for example, Mr. C, what gauge uh, or what meter do you use to measure who has more personal value than other people? How do you differentiate who has more value or who has a more valuable experience, the unbeliever or the Christian? What, <laughs> if I can say it, by what standard? Um, again, I think that's something to consider. Uh, okay. Uh, let's see here. Redefine living. Ask, uh, would you consider the presuppositionalism argument an argument of its own? I'm not really sure what you're saying. Uh, if you're saying like the transcendental argument, which is often equated with kind of the presuppositional argument, I think it's a, 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 a distinct argument from, say, like some of the traditional arguments. So I'm not really sure what you're asking there. I, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mr. C says, can't one do the same thing using Allah as a reference? Yeah, yeah, someone could someone could try. So, so if I were to say um, the truth of the Christian worldview is proven by the impossibility of the contrary, you know, reject the Christian world. And you have to presuppose the Christian world even to make sense of your rejection, right? That's when we make the claim you kind of just, just uh, really quick. Someone say, but wait a minute. What if I, what if, you know, can't, can't the Muslim use the same thing? Yeah, yeah, they can. They can, they can say, that the truth of Islam is that it's true by the impossibility of the contrary. But you see, what is that question assuming? And I pointed this out before. It's assuming that the presuppositional argument is simply an assertion without foundation. When the Christian says that the Christian worldview is true by the impossibility of the contrary, we actually believe we could make good on that claim. And so we're willing to go into the details. Now, if a Muslim wants to use the same argument, he can, right? Anybody could try to argue transcendentally for their position, but does their worldview have what it takes to pay the bills, to make good on providing the necessary preconditions for knowledge, providing the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience? That is where I think when the Muslim tries to uh, use that argument is going to fail because he doesn't have the money, so to speak, to pay the bills on the claim the Christian does. All right.
All right. Thank you for that, Mr. C. Uh, let's see here. All right. I got a lot of comments here, and that's good. I do apologize if I uh, if I skip over anything here. I was going to. Mr. C uh, says, if an apologist can help me, then why not? Isn't that why we're all here? Uh, sure. Yeah. Mr. C, um, I appreciate your questions. I hope that I answered some of them adequately. If if you're in uh, kind of going back and forth with some folks, um, I'm hoping that people would uh, go into some details with you and answer your questions. So um, I encourage folks to do that if they're able to do that. Let's see here. Let's see. Let's see. I think, I think I'm finished. I think that's it. Let's see. I think I was uh -huh. trying to read some question. <laughs> okay. So would you consider presupposition argument the same way you would consider Kalam? Ah, okay. Thank you for, and the William guy directly appeals to his own. Okay, so a couple of new things here. Hey, I don't ignore people's comments. Give me a break. Let me see here. Actually, I spent a lot of time steel man goes in position. Wow, a whole bunch of new comments came. So if I if I do um if I do skip your your uh your question, it's I I promise it's not on purpose, so I do apologize. I have to go back up because it's just like reloaded a bunch of other stuff here. Let me see here. Okay. Wow. A lot of, uh, do I support infant baptism? No, I don't support infant baptism. Um, I understand the argument, um, but it presupposes a specific continuity of the covenants that I don't see explicitly in scripture. Um, so, uh, when you're dealing with infant baptism, that's directly, especially within the context of say like Protestantism. So there's a differentiation between, um, infant baptism within Protestantism and reformed theology and infant baptism within say like Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism. All right. So that's a important distinction there. Um, within the reform perspective, infant baptism presupposes a specific continuity of the covenant so that children were included in the old covenant. And so there's no mention of them being excluded in the new covenant. So therefore we should assume a continuity. Um, I, I understand the argument. I understand the thrust of the argument. And I know that there are, um, really sharp guys that defend the, the position. Um, but one thing that gets me, and I know it's a kind of common objection that like Baptists bring up, uh, but I, it keeps popping in my head when I think about this. If infant baptism was a thing, I'm just um, I'm just amazed that it's it's found literally nowhere in the New Testament um, at all. Um, I do know the counterpoints to that, but I, I mean, Paul addresses a bunch of different things. He addresses baptism, um, and I, it would seem to me that if infant baptism was a thing, something would be said of it in the New Testament. Now, sure, that's an argument from silence, but I think the silence is is deafening. So I think the, the lack of, of uh, mention of it in the New Testament, I think, is, is a sort of argument against it. And um, I'm not sold, uh, so to speak, on the uh, the assumption of the specific understanding of the covenants um, as, you know, kind of Presbyterians hold, um, you know, as I just mentioned before.
All right. So sorry about that. <laughs> I hope that answered the question. All right. Let's see here. Choo, 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 choo. Thank you, Slam RN. I will call you Susan. All right. That's much easier. <laughs> I want to call you Slamming, but it says Slam RN. I don't know how to pronounce it. So uh, I'll call you Susan. Thank you so much, Susan. Okay. Let's see here. Someone said, someone said that I keep skipping their questions. Okay, Mr. C, um, can you give your most powerful evidential statement that will prop put someone to listen to you further? I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but but here here's the thing. Even the question itself, I think, is a little subjective. Uh, because there are certain people that will listen to me further and I don't talk so much about certain things as I would about others. So um, I find that if I were to talk about the resurrection with some people, they would want to listen more because their interest is the history, right? You know, historically, how do, how do we, how can we be reasonable to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? I mean, that happened 2000 years ago. What evidence is there for, um, and then I would talk to someone about that and they perhaps would want to listen longer. This is that, by the way, this is precisely what happened to me recently. I, sp I spoke with someone and, and, uh, you know, um, they sat there and listened with interest. So, it's different. And I've had people where I've argued transcendentally and they say, Hey, you know, that's interesting. I want to talk about that. Um, but the experience is different. Okay. I could be saying stuff here on YouTube and you're kind of like, I don't want to listen anymore. This is ridiculous. There's something different about listening to someone on YouTube versus listening to someone face to face. And I find that my interactions, uh, face to face, almost everyone I speak to wants to, uh, listen further, um, uh, because there's this, more intimate interaction. The person can see and feel that I actually care about them. Uh, and even in their disagreements, uh, they're willing to kind of like sit down and be like, Hey man, but, but what about this? But what about that? And so, um, it's not an issue of the most powerful, um, evidential statement that's subjective. Okay. I can go, I can, um, bring up an issue in science. And for some people that that's not powerful, but for the person who's more scientifically oriented, that might be powerful right? The average person that I talk to, I can just talk about my experience as a Christian, right? And that's powerful enough to keep them, to keep them listening further. So uh, the question there is, uh, there's no one powerful evidential statement that one could say that will lead someone to stay and listen further. I mean, people are different. I mean, you know, I, I there are certain things that I've given very powerful evidence. I'm like, man, surely this person's going to be, and they're not interested. So it's a, a kind of a subjective thing, I think. All right. Uh, you can give me a thumbs up if you are okay. I'm going to try to go through the rest of them. Um, as long as my, my, my throat allows, let's see here. Determinism. Someone asked about, I wanted to get to that. What do you think about accommodationism? Uh, Susan asks, what do you think about accommodationism like John Walton and Michael Heiser? I'm not familiar with that. So I, I can't really speak to that. Um, sorry about that. Let's see here. Let's see. So, uh, auger, I'm so sorry. Auger, auger. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. I'm sorry. 
Uh, he says determinism isn't necessary for intelligibility. Oh yes, it is. Uh, here's here's the thing. Here's what I said before that that there was a necessary connection um, between presuppositionalism and Reformed theology is that presuppositionalism uh, presupposes an absolute God who uh, creates all facts and gives facts the meaning that it has and gives history the direction that it has so that it is right there in line with God's decrees, God's creative decrees and his purposes and all the things that he accomplishes, that there's nothing outside this all-encompassing absolute God, nothing outside his will. So I would, I would actually... Um, disagree with auger i think a determinism of a of the calvinistic flavor i think is an essential feature to the presuppositional paradigm and that's why um you don't have many um arminian presuppositionalists running around okay because it runs contrary to their to their theology um now determinism again is a is a loaded term and that needs to be uh you know tethered out a little more. Folks might want to listen to the discussion I had with the French philosopher, Guillaume Bignon, where we talked about determinism in depth. Uh, but no, before anyone types it, he was determined to say that. That doesn't that doesn't solve the issue. So, uh, but yes, I think it's a very important feature of the, the whole package there. All right, let's see here. Uh, you can't transcendentally, is that what he said? Transcendentally prove determinism. Sure you can. That's, of course you can, right? If you can transcendentally, okay, using Van Til, right? Using his transcendental argument. If you can prove the truth of the Christian worldview, which for Van Til was just Calvinism, okay? Uh, Calvinistic understanding of the, of the nature of God, his decrees, man, man's place in, in the world, man's relationship to God, the creator-creature distinction. Remember, when we say we argue for the Christian worldview, we're arguing for a package deal. And so if determinism is taught in scripture, and I'm arguing for the package deal transcendentally, and if I successfully argue for the package deal transcendentally, then determinism uh, falls into that, if determinism is the correct view. Um, you would actually prove the truth of the system of which determinism is part of that system. So, so yes. Um, so I would argue, yes, you can prove it transcendentally in that sense, because we're not just arguing for piecemeal points. We're arguing for an entire system, right? So, all right. Thank you for that, uh, arger. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, sire, hey, Vincent, debate flowers. No, thank you. All right. <laughs> I actually was on uh, Leighton Flowers' show a while back. We had a really good discussion. You guys should check that out over uh, his channel. It was a really good discussion. People uh, were really um, receptive of it, and uh, um, I enjoyed it, um, although I've listened to enough flowers that I... Uh, I'd like to moderate a debate with him. I think debating him would be a little frustrating on my end, and I say that with respect. I mean, he and I have a good... Uh, not that we're friends, but um, we've interacted a little bit here and there, and it's it's very respectful. But not sure I'd want to get into a debate with him. Uh, but thank you for that. Do 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 do. Okay, I'm trying to skip through stuff that I already answered. <laughs> I'm a COVID skeptic. Oh my goodness. Hey, hey, Vincent, the the sire. I actually. Uh, here we go. The sire. Here we go. I actually uh, wanted to talk to you about something. So. Don't go away. 
Uh, well, actually, I won't talk to you about it now because it's late. So when I end the live stream, I'll probably go to sleep. But I'm going to reach out to you, maybe on Discord or something like that. All right. And I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, do, 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 do. Let's see here. Okay. There are a lot of good comments and discussions going on. I don't see any questions. Um, do, 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 do. The term is in the truth. I'm going to say. Okay. Please be patient with me. Come on, Orgerer. Eli ignores all my comments. You don't understand how difficult it is to scroll through these things. Sometimes whole new comments kind of just load and kind of push all the things up. So I do apologize. Come on. I think I took some of your questions. All right. Let's see here. Uh, let's see. Let's see. It's all right. Uh, okay. I think that's it. I think that's it, right? Susan, the, the only Christian here. <laughs> Susan says, I have to get ready for church tomorrow. Good night, all. <laughs> maybe maybe I should do that. I have church tomorrow too. So thank you so much, Susan. I always appreciate you coming in. Uh, I think that's it for now. Um, I went out an hour and 44 minutes. I definitely went into this thinking that I was going to be like 15 to 20 minutes. But uh, I hope, I hope that folks understand the points I made with respect to what Dr. Ross uh, pointed out there in, in his answer to the question, that there is a difference, the kind of the gist of what I want to get, and I'll wrap things up here. Um, uh, and I, Well, there's one more question here. We'll take that. But um, I want you to understand the difference between the use of evidences and the use of evidentialism as methodologies, okay? So you don't, you don't dip in and out of different methodologies and do so consistently, okay? But I do agree with the heart of what Dr. Ross is saying, that we should be able to be flexible in the way we defend the faith because people ask different questions, right? So if someone has a historical question, give them historical answers. If they're asking a philosophical question, engage them. All doing so in a way that is consistent with your biblical commitments, all right? All right, well, one more question here. Uh, let's see here. All right, so Victory Street Ministry uh, asked the question, what's your favorite question to ask? an atheist? Ooh, that's, that's a good question. Uh, oh man. Oh, uh, okay. Um, my favorite question to ask an atheist, and it might sound like philosophical and abstract, but, and I, and I answer, and I ask it genuinely because I'm curious. Um, I'm curious as to how atheists, um, answer this question. So, so like an atheist will acknowledge his or her own finitude, right? Okay. And he exists in the world. Okay. Um, so I asked like context questions. What is the metaphysical context that gives meaning and intelligibility to uh, derivative facts? So facts that are derived from something more ultimate. Okay. What is that ultimate context out of which derivative facts derive and have meaning and context. The reason why I asked that question is because I'm curious how the atheist, okay, if he's philosophically knowledgeable and has his worldview kind of worked out and he has something to say to these issues, how does he get beyond himself to a broader context of reality that gives meaning to the facts that he asserts? So when he asserts a fact, facts only have meaning within a context within the context of reality and then it, and its relation to other facts. But because the atheist is finite, 
and has um, has no access point to that which is beyond himself. He's going to have to build an epistemology as epistemology presupposes metaphysics. How does he ground the intelligible meaningfulness of derivative facts? I like that question because it forces the atheist to really think about his own limitations. You know, how do I get behind, uh, beyond myself to reality such that I could understand these other facts that I'm talking about, right? Um, and, and it's not a trick question. It's not like a gotcha question. I honestly want to know how, how they get there, okay? Because many atheists that I've spoken to, uh, they'll say, I don't know what the ultimate context is, right? That's where you have, for example, the, the, the problem of, of hard solipsism. You know, how do I know I'm not the only mind that's in existence, right? You guys are just a figment of my imagination. Oh, that's just silly. So we'll just assume that's not true. But wait a minute. If atheism is true and given the situation, you have no access outside, how, how, do, you, how do you ground the intelligibility and meaningfulness of the facts you assert without knowledge of the metaphysical context and the relation that each derivative fact stands to one another? See, for the Christian... Our metaphysical context, that which is metaphysically ultimate, okay, is a personal God who reveals. Now, if you're an atheist, you don't believe that, that's fine. But from within Christianity, okay, um, the ultimate grounds of foundation is a personal being who reveals. So while it's true that on Christianity, I'm limited because I don't have in and of myself access to the metaphysical situation. The God who knows all, has created all, and has given meaning to all, has revealed the nature of reality to us such that the aspects of reality he reveals to us, we can know them, okay? So uh, without an ultimate personal, without a personal revealing metaphysical ultimate, how does the God denier get access to the metaphysical situation such that he can make sense out of the facts he asserts. That's kind of my favorite sorts of question to ask. Again, um, maybe an atheist has an answer to that and I'd like to examine it, but that that's the sort of question that I like to ask because it gets really to um, kind of the foundational issue of knowledge. I, I think it it sufficiently shows that, um, that given atheism, the, the individual atheist is cut off from the metaphysical context that would give him the meaning of the facts that he asserts, okay? Um, you, you know, whatever, assertion or position, whatever the, however the person uh, holds their atheism, I would say given atheism, given the assumption of atheism, I would say, I would ask those questions, okay? And again, it wouldn't be a trick question, wouldn't be a gotcha question. I'm curious, how does the atheist get beyond himself so that he can ground the facts that he asserts about anything? And yes, atheists assert facts. We all make knowledge claims. And those knowledge claims, the intelligibility of them, and the fact that we know them presupposes certain metaphysical and epistemological assumptions that need to be accounted for, and you can't just assert them. Just like the Christian, we can't assert our metaphysic. We should explain our metaphysic and say, hey, given the Christian package, here's how we know, you know, um, here's how we know A, B, and C, blah, blah, blah. And we argue from there, okay? So that's my favorite question to ask. Sorry if it sounds kind of philosophically abstract, but uh, I hope I hope it makes sense. I mean, because metaphysical metaphysical situation, you know, from Christianity, we have access to it because a personal God reveals that. That's why, um, from the, for the presuppositionalist, revelational epistemology is so important because it is through revelation that the Creator of all things connects us 
to the broader context and gives meaning to the specific things that we experience. Okay. All right. <sighs> that, those are great questions, man. Uh, I hope that answers, uh, it kind of makes sense, but, um, that's all I have for this live stream. Stay tuned. Okay. I'll be doing a live stream where, um, I don't know the exact date when I'm going to do it because I'm going to be starting up work soon, getting a little busy, but I want to do a live stream where I kind of lay out all of my, um, all of my theological positions, um, and why I hold them. I think that'd be a fun topic. And then you guys could ask questions and hopefully in the questions, uh, that you asked me about my own theology, it will, um, it will encourage me to get into some other topics that perhaps, you know what? I never thought about that. Maybe I should study up on that. So, um, so stay tuned for that again, Dr. Matthew Barrett coming in September uh, 2nd and, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser sometime in October. I'll keep you guys updated. All right. Thank you so much. Um, uh, thank you. Whoa. It's like, okay. So all, all he says, I'm a precept who affirms libertarian free will. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, again, whether you can do that consistently is going to be the case and appealing to Plantinga, uh, Plantinga is, is not a presuppositionalist along Vantillian lines. He would probably be within the umbrella of presuppositionalism, but I think he would, he would fall right into some of the problems that um, other folks who affirm libertarian freedom would fall into. So, um, but again, that throws a wrench into it and it's time for another, another live stream. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening to me blab about a whole bunch of stuff. I hope you're learning. I hope it's informative. Uh, and stay tuned for that systematic theology online course that I'll be creating uh, where folks can sign up for it um, uh, online. And if you want to take my apologetics course uh, and where I go into some of this metaphysical context stuff much deeper, uh, you could actually sign up for that right now in which you'll get all the course content, the outlines, the PowerPoints. You can work uh, at your at your own pace. So uh, you guys can check that out. Argurger, uh, I love you, Eli. Thank you so much, man. I love you too. I appreciate the, the good spirit of these questions. So uh, keep asking questions, keep thinking, studying, read your Bible. And if you're an unbeliever, keep asking questions, Christians, go easy on them, but engage them, uh, challenge them and do so with gentleness and respect. That's all for this live stream. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.